Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. Had a few days off. We are back. Happy Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th is always fun, right? Good vibes. But hey, it's fitting. October, Halloween's around the corner. It's kind of a good vibe for, for Halloween. So happy Friday the 13th. And I, again, am probably not going to cover the happiest, most rosy topics out there. But I do want to talk about the looming Israeli attack on Gaza. What could happen? Why it might be a humanitarian mess? Why I also have some concerns that it might be a trap for Israel. Not in sense of like they're going to lose to the Hamas fighters, but kind of an image-based trap, a symbolic trap, and kind of a mess. And then I also want to look at the other side of this, maybe a two-front war coming. Could fighting happen in Lebanon between Israeli forces and Hezbollah? Does Hezbollah invade parts of Israel? It's a mess, but that hasn't happened yet. I also then want to talk about progressivism and the just atrocious contradictions we've been seeing. A lot of leftist intersectionality, leftist groups, progressives, either defending Hamas, blaming it all on Israel, or saying that sometimes the fight has to take civilian lives. Like there's a lot of bullshit out there on college campuses, by left-wing writers, even academics at Yale. And I just want to talk about how This is really shedding light to me on the contradictions of the progressive movement and not in a good way. So we'll talk about that. And then at the end, probably some lighter stuff like George Santos. I got to end with something light. So we'll talk about George Santos maybe being finally ousted, which would be great news because as a fellow Republican had told or had said about him, he is a stain on the institution. And I would totally agree with that. So anyways, let's start off. So basically, Israel has given a pretty dire warning to people in Gaza, in northern Gaza mainly. The Economist notes, just before midnight on October 12th, Israel told the United Nations that the whole of northern Gaza, home to roughly 1.1 million people, should be evacuated within 24 hours. And they also gave this same ultimatum directly to Gazans, telling them to flee south to Wadi Gaza, which is like a riverbed that bisects the territory. So the statement said by the army in quotes, you will be able to return to Gaza City only when another announcement permitting it is made. And there's a, there's a spokesman for the United Nations, Stefan Dujaric, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. They talk about how this is probably going to be impossible to actually do within 24 hours and also how this is probably just going to lead to unimaginable tragedy in Gaza as well as potentially back in Israel as well. And Dujaric says here in quotes, the United Nations considers it impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. And that seems pretty obvious, right? I mean, I think about 2,000 Gazans have been killed. I'm I'm not actually sure if that number means like just civilians or a mix of Hamas fighters and civilians, but a lot of people dead already. I think it's kind of been expected that this is going to get worse on both sides, but pretty bad in Gaza, very densely populated as we've talked about. And also at the same time, it looks like we have a massive ground invasion coming probably in days, about 360,000 troops amassed at the border areas in Israel. So that is not good. I, I have been reading that it could still take several days before we see a, a, a ground invasion into Gaza because my hope is that Israel and the IDF do recognize that a massive exodus out of Gaza is not going to be t- taking place in 24 hours. That's just 
not really possible. I'm skeptical that it even can happen at all because a lot of people are trapped there, poor, can't even get out. There's no means of transportation. Travel would be difficult. Hamas at the same time wants them to stay there to use them as political propaganda, as human shields. So it's a really shitty situation. And then there's just the logistical nightmare of it because even if Palestinians do want to flee, there's refugee camps in northern Gaza and they're the most densely populated places in the world in places like Shati. And, you know, you have cramped houses, narrow alleys with like, I was reading a number, it's like 50,000 people per square mile or square kilometer. And I mean, I just don't even know how you could logistically get people out of there. Can you imagine just the chaos, traffic jams, civilian, like pedestrian jams, just, it would be a mess. And it could probably even lead to chaos, in my opinion. And also, basically, they want them to go to southern Gaza, right? My understanding is there's two roads that can get them there. Both have been damaged quite quite significantly over the you know the rocket attacks over the last week or so. And on top of that, we have to remember that Gazans are too poor to a lot of Gazans are too poor to afford private cars. A lot of them are relying on buses, private taxis. But of course, the elephant in the room for that is that. Petrol is in very short supply. Gas is in short supply. Energy generators are running out. Water's been cut off. So the, the logistics of getting, you know, 50,000 people per square kilometer, probably millions of people total, out of that region just seems completely impossible, especially when fuel is in very short supply. And from my understanding, Hamas fighters also control some of the resources. So do you think they're just going to let the people leave? My instinct would probably be a negative on that one. And so... Then on top of that, even if civilians do reach the south, what's the shelter situation like? That's another elephant in the room, right? And so, I mean, uh, it's so tough. I mean, I obviously, I, I, I'm definitely, I, I understand why Israel's doing this. I, I don't think they're doing it correctly, but you can understand the anger over the last week, right? But I hope they can try to find a way to give some time here for people to get out and wait a bit, but it just doesn't seem like that's going to happen. I mean, even if they give them a few days, we can hope people get out, but it just is a logistical nightmare that I don't see improving too quickly. And the other elephant in the room, I guess we have a lot of elephant in this room, elephants in this room, is that Egypt is a bad actor here. I have talked about Egypt before on this podcast, but the government of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, they call him a president. To me, he's a military dictator. He has been just hands down categorical in in refusing to accept refugees from Gaza. And the problem here is that, I mean, this is the country that should be helping out. It's right there. And I think they, sh- they just have a humanitarian obligation to do it. And they're not. Jordan, I've always given credit, excuse me, credit to in the past for doing this. But Egypt has always been a bad actor in this. And I was actually reading an interesting article that, um, that was in The Economist about why Egypt is always so against P- Palestinian aid. I think there's also some elitism looking down on Palestinians, maybe some racism as well there. But the article talks about within Egypt's army, there's a long-held belief that basically it, Israel sees the Sinai area, Egypt, as the solution for the Gaza problem that Israel has. And Egyptian military and politicians worry that Israel is trying to expel the Palestinian population into Egypt permanently. And 
basically the worry is that temporary refugees would become permanent ones. So they're just like, we're not even going to let anybody in, which I think is a selfish and misinformed idea. I have seen that the Biden administration, mainly um, spearheaded by Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, is really trying to beg Egypt to change their mind. They're trying to find solutions to this. Maybe they should get Bob Menendez in the Senate to meet with Egypt and get some more gold bars in exchange for allowing this to happen. I, I, I kid. I kid. But yeah, I mean, Egypt is a bad actor here. They don't want these refugees staying there permanently. And in some sense, that is also understandable because if they stay there permanently, that's a huge cost, a huge burden on society, not, not because they're human lives, they obviously deserve help and a safe place to live. But that is, that is tough when Egypt's economy, country is already not great, bringing in millions of refugees, difficult. So obviously, it's not black and white, but I do think Egypt should be helping here, especially because Egypt's kind of been an actor in this for years, decades, half a century. And in a sense, I would argue that Egypt has always actually, along with Israel, not made the situation for Palestinians greater. I mean, some of the different accords meetings over the past 40 years, Egypt has kind of been a middleman broker, technically, supposedly representing Palestine and not always doing so. So I think Egypt has been somewhat of a bad actor or, or, or just not acting in good faith here. So I think Egypt should be uh, getting involved here. But as of now, no. So that's the situation as we have it now. If Israel does end up invading, you're going to have a lot of people trying to get out, and time will only tell us if it's actually possible to get out. The last thing I'll say about this, too, is that there are worries that Israel is kind of walking into a trap here. And I don't mean like getting their asses kicked by, like the IDF getting their asses kicked by Hamas forces, but it's more like Hamas and Iran are kind of trying to lure the Israeli military into Gaza for a prolonged confrontation, and... Of course, that is exactly what the ground assault Israel is preparing for now looks like. And then you get in there, you end up leveling places, probably a lot of collateral damage, killing civilians, and it becomes more and more of just a propaganda tool for Hamas and I guess Iran in a sense. And that, that could, I think, really backfire down the road. And then at the end of the day, basically, you could see the media coverage change to basically outrage about the suffering of the two million residents of Gaza while Israel is now invading Gaza. So again, I understand why Israel's doing it. I don't really see them doing anything else. It's atrocious and I feel I feel like awful for Israel. I've been watching the coverage. It's heartbreaking. But I hope they don't walk into a propaganda trap that Hamas and Iran want them to. Now, the other side of this I want to talk about is that some worry that as Israel is looking to do something in Gaza, there also could be the risk of a two-front war, or at least a second front brewing that could complicate things. And basically, Iran's foreign minister, I hope I don't mispronounce this, but I might, Hossein Aramadoljian, um, spoke from Lebanon on October 13th. And he said, in quotes, there was a very likely possibility of a second front if Israel's blockade of Gaza were to continue. And apparently, from what I've been reading, Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon are getting pretty gung-ho and would like to fight. And obviously, we've heard about a little bit of shared rocket fire, but so far, they haven't really gotten too engaged in this conflict yet. And of course, I've, I've also read, and it seems quite true, that Hezbollah is a much better fighting unit, fighting force than Hamas. And 
this could really complicate things for Israel if they're dealing with all these moving pieces here. And The Economist talks about how basically there are game-changing plans across the border in Lebanon, and they are looking to capture Galilee and other parts of northern Israel. Potentially, it hasn't happened yet. And if they did that, there's also worries that maybe Iran via Hezbollah would try to target Israel's nuclear reactors. So that obviously wouldn't be would, wouldn't be great. And it looks like the goal, from what I understand, if they got involved, would be to completely topple the PA, the Palestinian Authority, which both Hamas and Hezbollah kind of see as a puppet government that has been propped up by Israel. I think there's probably some truth to that. And if, and if that's not true, you can definitely say that the, the PA is just a useless government entity at this part. And there haven't been elections in Palestine since like 2006, I want to say. So not great. And right now it seems like Hezbollah could be waiting for the invasion of Gaza. And then it could launch an attack later on. But I, I do think that if Israel, which it seems more likely, goes into Gaza, it seems more likely that then Hezbollah gets involved in, as well. And just some context, historical context. Um, in 2006, Israel, I mean, uh, Hezbollah had a war with the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, and the IDF was shocked by basically Hezbollah's professionalism and high-quality weaponry. <clears throat> Iran probably did that. And basically Hezbollah had started as kind of a guerrilla small militia in the 1990s, and IDF forces had noted by, you know, 2006, 2007, that it had morphed into a pretty conventional army capable of mounting, in quotes, swarming attacks against poorly trained IDF tank forces. So that's not what you want if you're now going to have a two-front conflict going on right now. And just to add some numbers to that, though, since even 2006, Hezbollah's capabilities have taken a lot of leaps. In 2006, The Economist writes, it fired almost 4,000 rockets at Israel over a month. Now the group's stockpile of rockets and missiles has grown to 150,000 or so, and apparently they are hidden in banana plantations across southern Lebanon, kind of spread out through there. And there's a guy, Fabian Heens, who works at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He said, in quotes, they have the capacity to overwhelm a lot of Israeli defenses. So that is not what you like to hear here. And I, I, guess, I guess we have to also remember, though, that at the end of the day, it's not certain Hezbollah is going to attack. It has to weigh a lot of different factors. You have to remember that Lebanon is not exactly the, the most stable, financially successful place in the, in the region. It's a pretty unstable state with um, a collapsing economy. Inflation is super high. So I guess you have to wonder if the country, for a lot of political and social reasons, could really sustain a conflict as well. Though... I think we do have to remember that Hezbollah, getting help from Iran, has pretty much been able to run a shadow kind of government entity there, and they do pay their soldiers and give them a better kind of situation than just average Lebanese people. And we also, though, have to remember that not all people in Lebanon are Shias. There are factions in Lebanon that might be hesitant or even opposed to this. So there's a lot of things weighing out here, but I think the biggest factor is Iran. And I guess the question is, does Iran want this conflict? Um... I don't know. Actually, I don't really know because so far Iran and its spokespeople have said that the invasion last week was solely by Hamas. But then at the same time, Iran is very against the Abraham Accords, which I talked about earlier in the week. And 
basically if Iran supports opening up that second front with Israel, that could really kill off potential coordination between Israel and other Arab countries, and it could spark a lot of anti-Western sentiment across the Middle East. And that seems like that's what Iran at the end of the day wants, is kind of to destabilize regional relationships with Israel. Moving on, before we get to the next topic, what I did just want to bring, excuse me, bring up one more time is that I am concerned that in these type of scenarios where you have, you know, Iran involved, you potentially have Russia giving Iran help or supplying weapons as well. Russia has been very quiet about all of this. You also have just these different terror groups like some of the forces in Iraq backed by Iran, some of the forces in Syria. You have Russia on the ground there. Turkey's been quiet. I could go on all day about it. But what worries me sometimes is that when one party or one action happens in one of these unstable type of situations, it can quickly just snowball into others, right? And of course, there's the known unknowns. But what about the things that we can't even predict happening? And the more this gets involved, I feel like it either quiets down or could really escalate into a bigger conflict that none of us want. And also, I should just note at the end of the day, this is good for Russia and it's good for Russia in Ukraine because a lot of attention is now on Israel. And of course, we are still sending aid to Ukraine, but I saw that Jim Jordan, it looks like he is going to be Speaker of the House. At the time of recording, it looks like he was voted in and he is not a Ukraine guy. I see us turning some of our attention to Israel, and we can do two things at the same time, but right now Putin is probably happy that the attention is off of him. And again, I'm sticking on this longer than you guys were probably hoping, but before we're out of here, the last thing I did want to mention, well, actually play, I wanted to play a small little excerpt from the Bulwark's Thursday night live kind of Zoom session podcast last night. Really good conversation between JVL, Jonathan V. Last, Eric Edelman, I think he was former ambassador to Turkey under Bush, Thomas Jocelyn, Bill Crystal, and Ben Parker. And Ben Parker kind of brings up how troubling this new kind of axis of pariahs or something, like you could call it something like that. They're all like pariahs to the West, and they're not really fighting each other anymore. They're trying to almost bring down the order we have. I'm going to play that clip really quick. It's about a minute just because I think it brings up some really good but troubling points on why, you know, we're seeing chaos in Ukraine, potential chaos down the road in Taiwan, and current just mass murder in Israel and in Gaza. And I think there is a connection that the basically the old world order, or, or basically the kind of United Nations post-World War II order is really being threatened, and the bad guys are getting more emboldened. I mean, I try not to use the word access, but there is sort of a coordination among all the worst people in the world, right? I mean, the the Russians and the Chinese are partners without limits. The Russians and the Iranians are now basically co-fighting a war in Ukraine. The uh, Iranians and their proxies you know, are, are Hamas and Hezbollah and the members in Iraq. The Russians' proxies are, you know, their puppet states in Ukraine and Georgia and Moldova and Belarus uh, and, you know, they're all friends with North Korea and they share nuclear technology when they can. And, you know, if you were if you were back uh, reading Krauthammer's, um, you know, uh, uh, unipolar moment essay, it sort of seemed like, well, eventually the United States will decline and there will be a bunch of other challengers. And I think what we're starting to see is that there's sort of a bunch of other challengers, but there's sort of one competing coalition of evil. Uh, and that's really bad. I mean, that's a significantly worse 
situation than if all of these people hated each other as much as they hate us. All right, moving on though, that's a really happy one. I'll, I'll end that segment on that. But I now I want to talk about the contradictions of the progressive social justice kind of intersectionality movements in the United States and in places like the UK and Australia, etc. So, and, and how it relates to almost like defending Hamas and kind of retconning what happened last weekend. So since the attack last week, I've seen some really good takes on what's happened, kind of saying you can hate Hamas, but also feel bad for the Palestinian people in the same ways you can think the Israeli government is too right-wing, but also cry for what's happened. But then I've also seen some just atrocious takes from people and actually friends throughout social media, on the news, online, in person. I, I am just kind of mind-blown at some of the things people have said. And now I've realized I actually can't talk to everyone I know or acquaintances, friends about this issue because... I just get angry when I hear just some horrible takes that are just kind of mind-numbing. And I think a lot of it comes from the contradictions we're starting to see between progressivism and social justice and what you do about this. And so I'll talk about Donald Trump at the end, but I want to focus on the left first. Because, by the way, Donald Trump said some pretty bad things, calling um, Hezbollah smart. But anyways... Mainly, this is not like the Biden or Blinken or moderate Democrats. This is not that at all. And actually, not even AOC, who has condemned some of the statements that groups have put out. But we'll, we'll get to that. But I'm talking about mainly younger Gen Z and older or younger millennials, progressives, right? Academics, even people like in Harvard and Yale and Stanford saying just some crazy shit. And I'm talking about the younger progressives that talk about human rights, equity, protecting lives, promoting a better and safer society for all, that talk about intersectionality, basically the idea that I think it was Kimberly Crenshaw that came up with a while back, basically talking about how not every minority is marginalized in the same way. So like, for example, like a, I don't know, a gay black woman would be more marginalized than like a, I don't know, a male, like a straight male black guy. Basically that, like intersectionality between race and gender and orientation all kind of determine your status in society, basically. And it seems like basically all of this has kind of short-circuited people on the left. And it seems like the Hamas attacks have just broken people's brains as well. And I've heard people go from like openly defending Hamas to at least hating Israel's cause enough that they end up defending what Hamas has done to even saying like Israel just shouldn't exist and Israel's an oppressive state and Hamas are freedom fighters using the parasails that they flew in to massacre the music festival people as symbols of freedom. It's, it's all insane. And you guys know my thoughts on this and how I think Israel's far right government is bad and should have worked more to work with Palestine over the years. You guys know I think this is complicated. Um, you, you can't just black and white pick a side. I understand that. But what's not complicated is that Hamas is a piece of shit organization that is a terrorist group, and it did this. And it murdered babies, kids, teenagers, raped and killed women, massacred senior citizens. That, that to me, there's, there's really no gray area there. No gray area. It's a, it's, a, it's a hate group. Now, this will, of course, lead to more violence in Gaza. But again, I say over and over is like, what did Hamas expect? And I'm sure they planned ahead knowing that Israel was going to respond. But yes, Israel is going heavy-handed. But we have to remember that Hamas really did poke the bear here. Full stop. And I, I might piss some people off with this. But 
It's clear to me that Israel is attacking Hamas and unfortunately killing civilians too, because as we know, urban warfare, rocket warfare in urban areas, especially when Hamas is basically using human shields, putting weapons and, and rockets in hospitals and places that are going to get hit and then create more collateral damage. Of course, that's going to happen. But So Israel is unfortunately killing civilians too. But Hamas meant to kill women and babies and children, clearly trying to eradicate the Jewish population, wipe them out of some of these parts. And I think a lot of progressives online, not all of them, by the way, not all of them, but a lot I've seen online completely miss this. And Helen Lewis is a writer in The Atlantic, and she does a really good job talking about the contradictions of leftism and progressivism. And the piece is called What Hamas Did to the Intersectional, Intersectional Left. Sorry, I cannot talk. But she starts with a series of lines that I, I think completely summarize my thoughts on this as well. And she writes in quotes, The terror attacks on Israel by Hamas has been a divisive, if clarifying, moment on the left. The test that it presented was simple. Can you condemn the slaughter of citizens in massacres that now appear to have been calculated sadistic and outrageous without equivocation or whataboutism? Can you lay down for a moment your legitimate criticisms of Netanyahu's government, West Bank settlements, and the conditions in Gaza, and express horror at the mass murder of civilians? Exactly. She said it better than me, by the way, so <laughs> really, really well said. And before I get back into her article for a few more thoughts, here's just some examples of what she's talking about, because I think it's important to really highlight what she means. So there was a progressive at Yale who argued that targeting civilians is always wrong, which is correct. A Yale professor named Yarina Grawal replied in quotes, settlers are not civilians. This is not hard. Literally implying, well, they're on taken land, so the women and children and babies can be massacred. It's not difficult. She now has locked her ex-account, by the way, where she said all this, because she's a hero, brave, says crazy shit, and then blocks everyone and locks it. Those are my type of people. <laughs> um, okay, in Chicago, Chicago's Black Lives Matter chapter posted a picture of a paraglider obviously referencing the gun person who, you know, descended on that music festival killing hundreds and literally literally buying into the Hamas propaganda, which was putting out pictures of fucking uh, paragliders and making people have new, a new symbol of rebellion and heroism against the Israeli invader or whatever. And, of course, the Chicago BLM chapter bought right into this and put that out in the picture. And... The chapter, of course, said they aren't proud of the post, deleted it later, so I guess that's a start. But, I mean, the, the second all this happened, I, I could tell you right away I wouldn't have wanted to post something like that. Another example, Harvard students, which I'm sure some of you have heard about, posted a letter uh, stating that its signatories, in quotes, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all the unfolding violence. Not true. The New York branch of the Democratic Socialists of America, oh God, this one was really bad, had a rally where, and I think I talked about this earlier in the week, they chanted in quotes, resistance is justifi justified when people are occupied. They also had a few participants with swastika flags. So that's the type of crowd they were bringing out there. They were also saying that like the freedom fighters were taking out the hipsters because apparently massacred beheaded babies are hipsters. And I will say AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, she did come out against this very strongly, in the words of Trump, strongly, boldly, bigly. And she put out a perfect statement saying, 
this is not good, condemned them. And also you had Sarah Silverman, another actually member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and Jewish, by the way, condemning this. They should be ashamed of themselves. Not, not AOC and Silverman, but the Democratic Socialists of America, the New York brands, they should be ashamed. Then there's also a journalist for the hard left outlet, I've never heard of it, Navarra, is Rivka Brown, tweeted in quotes, the, free, the, the struggle for freedom is barely bloodless, and we shouldn't apologize for it. Honestly, screw you, F you. Horrible take. And this is all insane to me, and I think really highlights, and, and there's more examples, by the way. Um, I just wanted to highlight a few. There's a lot more. And there, like, there was rallies in Australia saying something like gas the Jews or something or put them in the ovens. I, I don't even care anymore, but all bad stuff. But to me, this highlights and shines light on why this entire cause, this progressive intersectional cause is vapid and at times full of shit. Um, back to the article, Lewis, who, by the way, is no right winger. Um, I think she's a, a British leftist. She writes in quotes, in the fervored world of social media, progressive activists have often sought to discredit hateful statements and unjust policies by describing them as violence and even genocide. This tendency seems grotesque if the same activists are not prepared to criticize Hamas. Absolutely. By the way, I should note, <laughs> Hamas's founding charter is literally genocidal. It says, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, kill the Jews, when the Jew will hide behind stones and trees. So yes, the, the social justice equity for all people are defending a group, or at least not not defending a group that won't rest until all the Jews are dead. Isn't that nice? And it seems like intersectional leftists, as I talked to earlier, are kind of the main ones that have fallen for these old contradictions because basically, if I can summarize it in a very simple way, a poor Arab living in what they call occupied territory ranks higher on the intersectional scale than a wealthier Jew living in an occupying country. That's not what I think, but that's what they would say. Like the Jewish community's never been super high in the new kind of intersectional side, right? And I think intersectionality does have good points at one time because Obviously, if you're like a gay woman that's also African-American or something, your experience is going to be different than like a straight black guy, right? Like there are structures in there that impact people differently, and I totally understand that. But it seems like it's gone completely mad to the point where they would rather defend, you know, the Hamas movement because it's an occupied Palestinian Arabic movement, blah, blah, blah. And Lewis has a great point in her article. She writes here in quotes, "...in escaping from the academy into the mainstream." intersectionality morphed into both a crude tallying of oppression points and an assumption that social justice struggles fit neatly together. One example she uses is, <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I mean, it's kind of funny. It's also just kind of ironically depressing, but it, there's a group called Queers for Palestine that was defending Hamas. You don't have to know much about Hamas to know that they're probably not accepting of queer individuals. Um, being queer in Palestine is not exactly easy. There was a Hamas guy who they just accused of being gay who was beheaded a few years ago. So it's just fun when you have like left-wing college groups like Queers for Palestine siding with a group that clearly doesn't agree in any of that. And uh, the Atlantic article also talks about how fitting Israel into the intersectional framework has always been difficult because... Jewish citizens have been historically oppressed, right? The survivor, survivors of the Holocaust. And they're, but at the same time, they're currently in a dominant position over the Palestinians. 
And this is one that I think is actually quite complex. It is something that's complex. And again, you can criticize that. You can criticize the fact that there's never been cooperation. I would say, again, on both sides, people tend to forget that the two-state solution has been on the table at multiple different conferences over the last 50 years. And there's been many times where the Palestinians have walked away because they don't like the deal as well. They've, they've not played easy either. But it, it is tough because the Jewish populations are historically oppressed, but also some would argue they're kind of putting an iron fist down on the Palestinians for the last couple decades. But that is what you do, unfortunately, when for the last 50 years they've been trying to kill you. And so it is a really tough one, but I am just ashamed to see the people that talk about equity and being nice to others and welcoming and accepting, you know, LGBTQ plus rights are now defending this bullshit. So we'll probably talk about George Santos tomorrow because I got to go soon. But while the left has been, you know, horrible lately on Hamas, and I'm talking about the left left, not Democrats, not your standard left. Talking about the online left, the college left, the socialist left, the intersectional left. But, of course, Donald Trump, our buddy the orange man from Mar-a-Lago, has also been kind of shocking me with some very troubling, insane comments. During a speech to his supporters, I think it was on Wednesday in West Palm Beach, Florida, he weighed in on the Hamas attacks. And (laughs) he got a lot of attacks from both the right and the left, people ranging from Rob DeSanctimonious to Mike Pence to Joe Biden's administration. And he basically said, you know, I'll, I'll just read the quote. He said in quotes, you know, Hezbollah is very smart, Trump said. They're all very smart. And then he went on to attacking Netanyahu. It seems like he's attacking Netanyahu because basically Netanyahu didn't defend Trump when Trump, you know, didn't win the election in 2020. He didn't also help Trump's coalition to kill uh, Soleimani in 2019. I think, or I think it was early 2020. It doesn't matter. But either way, he has these personal grievances against Netanyahu. So he attacks Netanyahu and then at the same time basically says, Hezbollah, great people, strong people. They're all very smart. And it's just completely lost on me why an American president, a former American president, would even think about praising a terrorist organization backed by Iran. And I guess I just ask time and time, time and time again, like, what is it with Trump's just constant support for violent regimes and authoritarian leaders? A lot of Republicans like him, even, even Tim Scott, which was a shame, have spent more time criticizing Biden than they have actually calling out all of this, all of this chaos and tragedy. And it just seems like, I think it was either JVL on the bulwark or Tim Miller on the bulwark that were talking about how the right wing has really become the hate America first party. It's like whenever, like ranging from Putin's invasion of Ukraine to now this, instead of condemning Putin, condemning Hamas right away, they blame Joe Biden. It's, and then Trump also in that same speech where he said Hezbollah is smart, he also gets into how, you know, the Capitol looks like shit and gets back to his... Um, Barack Hussein Obama stuff like how do you how do you have a serious party when they don't like when instead of condemning hard Putin's actions in Ukraine they start by condemning Biden you just don't have a serious party and it's probably going to get worse because Jim Jordan is now apparently going to be speaker lots to celebrate there so anyways let me know your thoughts I'm sure not everyone's happy with my take on kind of the progressive contradictions of this but 
I think it's true. Let me know your thoughts. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios. Thank you.